You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. What passes as acceptable science depends on the coherence of its vision of the universe. This picture is drawn as a very large tapestry, a vision that includes resonance with a broader cultural milieu. Science today is one of the largest cultural components, religion another, and sometimes their relations are deeply fraught. My late colleague, Stephen Jay Gould, proposed what he called non-overlapping magisteria as a way to solve potential conflicts between science and religion. They can be friends, he argued, if they stayed out of each other's domains. In some respects, that is a good idea, but the reality is that the magisteria overlap in powerful ways that may not always seem obvious to the participants. We find these words in a 2014 publication from Harvard University Press entitled God's Planet, and this work is the subject of our discussion today on Christian Humanist Profiles. My name is Todd Pedler, and I'm Associate Professor of Physics at Luther College. Our guest today is the author of God's Planet, Dr. Owen Gingrich, Professor Emeritus of Astronomy and the History of Science at Harvard University, and Senior Astronomer Emeritus at the Smithsonian Astrophysical Observatory. Born in rural Iowa and raised in Kansas and later, later Indiana, Dr. Gingrich pursued undergraduate studies at Goshen College in Indiana and subsequently earned the AM and PhD in astrophysics at Harvard. He began his position as astronomer at the Smithsonian Observatory in 1962 and associate professor in Harvard in 1968. His scholarly work includes important studies in stellar atmospherics, but also in substantial works in the history of astronomy. Dr. Gingrich is well known as an expert in the lives and work of Johannes Kepler and Nicholas Copernicus, having undertaken a decades-long study of the most famous of Copernicus's works on the revolution of the heavenly spheres. Dr. Gingrich is widely published both in scholarly press and more popular journals, and is, in addition, the author or editor of over 20 monographs, mostly concerned with historical astronomy. It's my great pleasure, Dr. Gingrich, to welcome you today to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you very much. It's a gorgeous day here in New England after all of our blizzards uh, this winter, which were record-breaking in the amount of snow we've got. And uh, just yesterday, the snow finally melted in our backyard. Well, I, I, I bet it's nice and green now, <laughs> I, would, <laughs> I would suspect. Well, I should start by... Yeah, go out. ahead. Uh, and it's a gorgeous blue sky, and it's over 70 degrees. This is so different from what it was in February and March. It's just wonderful. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, I, I should begin by saying that unlike any others I've interviewed for Christian Humanist Profiles, I actually know the town in which you were born, Washington, Iowa, which is only a few hours drive south of us here in Decorah. I think our listeners might like to hear a little bit about your upbringing and the path that you took from rural Iowa to Kansas to college and then your Ph.D. work uh, at Harvard and your subsequent work there. Um, particularly, I think we'd like to hear about your turn from research in stellar atmospheres and the physics of, uh, of, of such and to the long road that you subsequently trod in historical astronomy. I've always been interested in the nature of science. What are science's claims to truth? How do those work out with respect to other claims for truth? And so I thought it would be important to do science for a while. And then when I had an opportunity to begin to work more deeply in the historical past of science, I realized that one could get perhaps better perspective when you're farther away from it rather than 
right in it. And so uh, it's not been such a radical change as you might imagine, my switching from uh, stellar atmospheres, which is very mathematical, very technical, uses a lot of heavy computer time, uh, to turning to a subject which uh, means chasing copies of books and libraries scattered all around the world to look mm. quite kind of annotations and evidence of readership there is in them. Uh, mm. So uh, that's, that's the theoretical basis for all of this. The specifics of how I got from uh, Kansas and uh, Indiana to Harvard Observatory are more convoluted and, and peculiar and very lucky for me in terms of what ultimately happened in my career. Well, I, I, when one thing I, I, I also not that it's the subject of this te- uh, of this show, but um, uh, but I but I do have to say the book that nobody read is a, a, a very enjoyable uh, story of of your searching out um, uh, the the work on Copernicus, and and I think that uh, it's it's well worth uh, recommending to our listeners uh, if they're so interested. Um, the publisher was rather nervous about that title. Really? Some people understand that the actual title of the book is The Book Nobody Read. Yeah. It's used ironically against Arthur Kessler, who said Copernicus's great book was book nobody read. He figured that since here's the truth coming out, and how come didn't everybody just adopt it right away? All right. It's a much richer and more complicated story. Yeah. Anyway, my publisher, as I say, was a little bit nervous about the title, but afterwards came and said it was an inspired title because it stops all the buyers from the mega bookstores cold in their tracks when they come to it. <laughs> yeah, you bet. Well, like uh, a similar a similar title uh, of interest to, to me is. Uh, is the old book uh, "How to Read a Book," which which I thought was uh, quite amusing as a title until I until I read it and found out actually it's a very helpful book for for those learning uh, to read from a, a, a more deeply intellectual uh, manner. But uh, anyway, I I'd, I'd like to begin with uh, as we as we sort of move to uh, the book before us, God's Planet, um, to ask you. Uh, how you came to write that book? Uh, what was the what was the genesis of of this idea? It was uh, originally a set of lectures which were given at Gordon College, uh, about uh, half an hour north of here, uh, north of Boston. Uh, it's a, a Christian college, and they were interested in a in a series of lecture series in honor of Robert Herman, who was for many years the executive officer of the American Scientific Affiliation, which is a group that takes both science and the Bible seriously. Uh, And I had traveled with him giving lectures across America for the ASA and so on. Uh, He's retired now, and uh, they were interested in... uh, a a set of lectures to uh, help celebrate uh, his work. I'm not exactly sure how I got into this particular 
uh, selection. I was going to call the book uh, something slightly different, but Harvard University Press decided that since they had another book uh, entitled uh, After Physics, and mine was Beyond Physics, that that was too much alike. And so they suggested that we call it God's Planet to fit sort of in a sequence with an earlier book of lectures I had put out, which is called God's Universe. But I was interested in particular about the subject that you alluded to in the introduction. Uh, did you mm -hmm. say that uh, Stephen Jay Gould had been a colleague of yours? Uh, of yours. <laughs> Mine. Yes, indeed, he yes. was. Uh, and uh, uh, we often got together and uh, uh, enjoyed a laugh over the fact that uh, uh, we each have the same middle name, mm. J-A-Y, mm -hmm. which I don't use, but there we are. Yes. Uh, Steve was not terribly interested in the problem of the creationists and their idea of such a short age of the universe and so on un until uh, he started uh, having his work uh, used to show that evolution is in disarray because he and Niels Eldridge had come up with uh, what they called uh, punctuated equilibrium mm -hmm. as uh, some modification of the evolutionary picture. And uh, the idea was, here. here's a totally different scheme, which is coming forward. Clearly, evolution is in trouble. And Steve was very upset about that and began to think. And he came up with the idea of the non-overlapping magisteria. A magisterium is sort of a set of operating rules. Uh, it makes a cluster of knowledge, and you have certain rules that you use in building a scientific theory, mm -hmm. and similarly you have different set of rules uh, for religious belief and religious structures. And Steve felt that if they each minded their own business, non-overlapping magisteria, they would get along just fine. And he realized, of course, that not only is science one of the major cultural factors in the world today, and particularly so in America, but that also religion is a great cultural uh, edifice and a system of belief for many people, and he felt that these two great systems would not uh, get in conflict if they just each minded their own business, kept out of each other's hair. Mm -hmm. The more I thought about this, I realized that there uh, were lots and lots of situations where they uh, overlapped. <clears throat> and let me mention one as an example. Sure. Arthur Kessler, when he wrote in his The Sleepwalkers that Copernicus's book was a book nobody read, he assumed that the idea that the sun was in the center of, uh, well, of the solar system, Copernicus actually invented the solar system that way, <clears throat> that this was such a logical and beautiful idea 
that everybody who read the book should immediately be swayed and agree with it. And Kessler realized that it took 150 years before a majority of educated people were prepared to accept that the sun is in the middle of our planetary system and the earth is spinning around 1,000 miles per hour at the equator and uh, even faster going around the sun every year, that uh, that uh, he didn't, uh, Kessler just didn't realize that that went against the grain of people's understanding. I mean, if the earth is spinning around at 1,000 miles an hour at the equator, what people down there would just be thrown off into space. (laughs) And think how much harder it would be to walk west than to walk east. I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> hope I've got that right. Yeah. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, yep. you see, it's because of the overlapping magisteria. There is so much cultural situation uh, in having a fixed earth. Scripture, here and there, seems to go exactly that way. And that's because when the Bible was being written, that was a universal belief uh, in the fixity of the earth. So it's a good example of where uh, the magisteria overlap. Uh, why, uh, Why do they overlap this way, or how are you going to fix that? When Copernicus's system was introduced, it had an anonymous preface to it that said, uh, these are just hypothetical. It's a way of making circles and explaining the motions in the heavens, uh, but uh, this is not necessarily a description of how things really are. And so the circles were accepted for decades and decades, as a computing method, but not a real description of how the universe is. Hmm. That's uh, that's a very helpful. Um, that's very helpful, actually, at, 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 as an example of of this kind of overlap. I wonder. Um, I'm a. I, I would. I would like to ask a, a, a different question, um, and I want to I want to fast forward a little bit um, because I, I just been I've been intrigued by by the by the discussion of of the way that Copernicus pitched his book. Um, you know, Galileo coming later um, is 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 going to take on the same the same resistance. And it's interesting to me how his objectors. It seems to me, and, and you sh- I'd, I'd like you to confirm this if I'm if I'm right. His objectors are just as much concerned about contradictions with Scripture uh, as, and, and and perhaps even more so, they're concerned about contradictions with the Aristotelian cosmology in which they were educated. Is that a fair statement? Yes, you could ask a question, uh, something like a child might ask, uh, why doesn't the sky fall down? Well, Aristotle must have thought about that. And Aristotle says, here on Earth, we have the uh, terrestrial elements, Earth, air, 
fire, and water. And up in the sky, you have the ether, the heavenly substance. And the natural motion of the heavenly substance is to go in circles. And if it's going around in a circle, it just stays up that way. And it isn't going to fall down. <laughs> because mm-hmm. that falling down is something uh, for Earth or water, but not mm. for the Earth, not for the ether. That's up there doing its own thing. Now, as soon as you go to Copernicus and you take the Earth, which is made of all these terrestrial elements, and send it in swift circular motion around the sun, uh, that's getting things terribly mixed up. It's going around with the terrestrial stuff in the midst of all these spheres of, of ether, uh, and the physics begins to get confused. It was all so neat and so wrong with Aristotle. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, and it, and it's um, it's interesting to look at. We've uh, one of the courses that I teach here at Luther is actually a course that's primarily humanities, um, and we uh, we read Sidereus Nuncius of Galileo in as part of this course, and we've just got done teaching it uh, this past week. And among the very interesting things that that. I found in my reading of of that particular volume um, is the commentary that the author, the the compiler, the the one who who the scholar who wrote the uh, the introductory essays, um, he describes the reaction of some of the Jesuits uh, to Galileo, and 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 it's it's very interesting to see this um, this this worldview presupposition problem that really is at the heart of their objections. Not not so much that uh, he hasn't observed what he's observed, but that just doesn't square with the way they think a priori about the universe. And um, I think we'll 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 touch on uh, on that kind of idea uh, again as we as we as we talk about some of the other issues that we'll discuss this hour. Um, I I'd like to um, ask you a big picture question um, uh, about this uh, book and these lectures and what have you. Uh, one of the one of the big items that I know that you would like uh, readers and, and our listeners to to grapple with is this question of the overlapping of the magisteria. Um, do you have any other uh, big themes that uh, um, that you explored in this in this book that uh, you might like to share? Well, that was the background theme that keeps coming through, uh, but uh, uh, there are uh, the examples of the three people that I concentrate on the book. First of all, Copernicus, as I've mentioned. Secondly, Darwin. And thirdly, a 20th century figure, Fred Hoyle. Fred Hoyle invented the term uh, Big Bang, mm-hmm. although at the time, he absolutely didn't believe in it. Uh, and he managed to change his mind. So the chapter is entitled, Was Hoyle Right? And the answer is, Sometimes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, there's a lot of uh, astronomy in the Hoyle chapter, and there's a lot of evolution 
in the Darwin chapter. Do you um I I think one of the things that that I that I gather from uh from reading this is uh is you're you're presenting us with some commonalities um in the way that science progresses uh when new ideas are explored uh such as uh, uh although we could argue that the heliocentric uh model is not exactly new with Copernicus there were Greeks who thought that that was the the way things were as well um but Copernicus and and certainly Darwin uh uh with his uh natural selection and and uh and and, and descent by modification uh and so forth and Hoyle uh Hoyle is particularly uh Concerned with with uh, with with fine tuning of parameters, or at least that that is part of the thing that, things that you uh, you discuss um, in that in that chapter. Um, how does science progress, in your view, uh, when new models come along? Uh, as as you've said uh, already, Copernicus was not accepted right away, and so what what is there about science that uh, that causes this? Uh, this kind of fits and starts uh, progression? I think basically you have uh, ideas, maybe not very well worked out theories, but about how things work. And when you get maybe a grander scientific theory, uh, you uh, maybe feel challenged and uncomfortable that what you commonly believed is so different, uh, just, I think, as relativity was for some people. Uh, the, many of the particular details of what happens in a relativistic universe don't affect us in our everyday universe. It does to keep the GPS system going correctly, uh, <laughs> let's say, but people aren't really very aware of how subtly that works. But uh, uh, when, when, you, when you hear uh, things about mass, the speed of light, and so on, which don't affect us in everyday life and yet are told about them, uh, there's a certain unease that things aren't quite the way you thought they were, even though it's not changing things enough uh, to, uh, to affect what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and um, and I think that that's I think that's a a, a good uh, way of of uh, approaching many problems. That uh, if it's outside your experience, of course, it's not going to be uh, necessary even for you to grapple with um, the contradictions inherent in a new model. Let's say, um, but also I I. I gather that the entrenchment of ideas um, and the fact that you know it works in the old realm perfectly fine at Newtonian mechanics, for instance, um, does tend to make it very, especially if it's worked for a very long time. It's it's it, it, it's very hard for, for someone to uh, to accept change. Uh, I think, but I also I want to explore the question of whether um so maybe this this gets us back to 
your your point number one, uh, the 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 origin theme, um, that I think that there may be uh, worldview issues that uh, cause ideas to be unattractive um, at first. Um, and you know certainly with Darwin um there would be uh there would be that kind of objection that uh uh that has that caused his his ideas to to be unattractive and unacceptable for 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 quite some time um, can we explore the question of boundaries that maybe ought to be placed around around regions of inquiry that maybe science should attempt to undertake and 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 beyond which should not necessarily go and vice versa uh religious inquiry or religious thought um are there are there appropriate spheres for investigation and boundaries beyond which you really aren't equipped to deal um in either in either case well let's just take a a major development of the uh, 20th century, and that was is the age of the earth, because there's a lot of material in the Bible that suggests that uh, because of the genealogies of the patriarchs, uh, that there isn't that much longer uh, than a few thousand years uh, as a scope for the uh, time that humans are on the earth. And then comes along the geological techniques of radioactive isotopes for dating the actual rocks. Of course, first of all, the rocks were discovered to lie in particular sequence, whether they were this way in England or whether they were this way in New York State, uh, that there was something called a geological column and that the dating down these rocks uh, going into the Cambrian period carries one back about 50 million years. And uh, uh, that's 50 million years? No, I'm, I'm way short. But anyway, mm -hmm. the numbers uh, are... Uh, 500 billion, let's say. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, these, these numbers are mind-bogglingly big and very difficult to reconcile uh, with uh, the biblical story. And I think that has disturbed people, uh, unsettled them without knowing quite what to object to. Now, Darwin's evolution is, theory is based on a very long time scale. Uh, going into uh, hundreds of millions and billions of years. Uh, and so uh, that unease is reflected in somehow uh, thinking that uh, Darwin is a bad guy who's uh, somehow uh, totally contrary to the Bible and so on. Uh, but it isn't... Uh, really just Darwin. It's the whole concept of the size and the age of the universe. Mm. So uh, these, are, these are issues that people have to 
uh, get themselves wrapped around and to understand. And uh, it's taken 150 years uh, for people to really come to terms with that, just as it was for people to accept the heliocentric system. So this is part of why the second chapter of my book is entitled, Was Darwin Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, Would you... um... It's interesting to, it, that um, I, I just want to throw out a, uh, a quotation which, with which you may be familiar. This is from St. Augustine, um, who wrote the following. He said, if it happens that the authority of sacred scripture is set in opposition to clear and certain reasoning, this must mean that the person who interprets scripture does not understand it correctly. It is not the meaning of Scripture which is opposed to the truth, but the meaning which he has wanted to give it. That which is opposed to Scripture is not what is in Scripture, but what he has placed there himself, believing that this is what Scripture meant. It seems rather apropos. <laughs> it's very interesting because just last night I heard a wonderful talk uh, from a religious believer, Bill Phillips, who's a Nobel laureate in physics. Uh, and he was mm-hmm. giving a lecture at MIT, and he quoted that very same passage from St. Augustine. Did he? <laughs> Had it up on a slide, in fact. Oh, it's wonderful. How many of you know where this comes from? And it just sounds modern enough that it could have been written by somebody in the 20th century rather than at the time of St. Augustine. Yeah, yeah. Well, that and that's... Um... Again, I, I happen to have that at the ready because we had used it in in teaching uh, the Galileo text. Um, but uh, yeah, no, very interesting. Um, can you talk a little bit about uh, about the practice of scientists um, who look at what they're studying and feel a sense of wonder at what they're studying. I mean, how how does that fuel the scientific endeavor? Because for me, it certainly does, and I'm sure for you the same. Yes, there is something awesome, and it's awesome not because the universe is so big, but because it's it just fits together so well in incredible small ways that make it work in big ways, uh, the, the sort of what I would call the fine-tuning of the universe is uh, quite remarkable. When you, uh, I believe you said in in the text, and I hope I'm not inserting words into your mouth uh, or, or or through your pen, um, you you said that this is not reserved to Christians. Uh, or to religious believers of various kinds, but both the Christian and non-Christian alike will look at uh, look at the universe in this way. Um, but for the Christian, what what in particular is there that that maybe is is not present for for the non-believer as a scientist? 
I'm not much of an expert on non-believers. Mm-hmm. I am. I am not of the persuasion that I can argue somebody into a theistic belief if they are not uh, uh, already amenable to an idea like that. Mm-hmm. I just say that uh, I am incapable psychologically of believing in a universe that has no purpose. Mm-hmm. And how can I prove that the universe has a purpose. It's because everything hangs together for me so much better to believe that. Uh, But uh, I can't do an argument in the same way that uh, one can do a mathematical proof. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One thing that you uh, also discussed um, in... Uh, in this text is the question of of causes um, the distinction between efficient causes and final causes or perhaps ultimate causes um, can you play out uh, lay out that that distinction and uh, and where it may prove interesting uh, with regard to the 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 any one of the three, uh, any one of the three um, people that you discussed. I certainly like to use an illustration that I have got from John Polkinghorn, who is a British physicist who resigned his professorship at Cambridge University in order to become an Episcopalian priest, mm-hmm. and was called back to be president of Queen's College in Cambridge. At any rate, he uh, uses the following rather uh, homey little illustration of the difference between final causes and efficient causes. The question is, why is the water in the tea kettle boiling? Well, you can describe it in terms of the heat coming in the bottom from the flame, the molecules of water going faster and faster, and finally some of them flying out of the top. That's an efficient cause. It explains how things happen. But maybe the water under the tea kettle is boiling because I want some tea. That's a final cause. And science is, by and large, interested in efficient causes, how things work, and not why they work. But increasingly, people like Fred Hoyle, who are staunch atheists, came to recognize the idea of final causes. And he said, with respect to some of the detailed modeling of the uh, nucleus of the carbon atom, uh, he said, Either there are uh, horrendous coincidences or there is intelligence behind the universe. He was uh, what I think I call in the book uh, something like a uh, uh, believing atheist mm-hmm. or, or some sort. He, he uses the term horrendous coincidence. Uh, multiple times as I started 
tracking down the various things he had written. I found that this was a, a theme that keeps bothering him and keeps coming up in many different circumstances. Hmm. Uh, and talk a little bit about uh, the, the the problems that may arise when I mean you you hinted that science really uh, should be I would I would say um, interested in efficient causes and not so much final causes. Um, and, I, and I and I gather this is a place where you would say we've got magisteria overlapping uh, when scientists start talking about final causes. I would agree with that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And there is overlapping of magisteria, not necessarily between theists and scientists, because an atheist can have a certain framework of belief that doesn't arise from science at all and yet overlap it so that uh, when you hear somebody saying that evolution is atheism, uh, that's a sure example of overlapping magisteria, just different magisteria than you or I are in. Yeah, and you argue in the book that that overlapping is more or less unavoidable. Is that right? Well, we're all trying in some way or another to get the big picture. And mm-hmm. it, you don't get it solely from uh, uh, being, a, being just a scientist mm-hmm. and working with uh, the rules of doing science. Yeah, yeah. Well, I wonder if um, if you would give me a little bit of, uh, or at least give our listeners a little bit of uh, um, one 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 of the pictures that you, uh, or one of the themes that you discussed that I thought is quite interesting, and certainly in terms of modern. Uh, cosmology today. I mean, immediately today, it's in the news. This uh, the past couple of weeks is is the multiverse theory, uh, the idea that there are uh, a multitude of universes and uh, a, a, offered as an explanation of why things are just so, as it were, in our universe. Um, you talk a little bit about about, about that uh, that concept of multiverses, and then and then maybe uh, talk a little bit about how it connects to this idea of, um, of 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 final and efficient causes or overlapping magisteria, the things we've been discussing. Well, I am something of a skeptic when it comes to multiverses, and that is in part because. By definition, these multiverses are uh, beyond our space and therefore unobservable by us. So we would have to deduce their presence by some other kind of reasoning, which uh, many of my friends who think about these things uh, reject as, as good logic. Let me explain, though, uh, for your listeners, 
a little bit of, of where the multiverse theory is at and why. Because what Fred Hoyle had found uh, was a remarkable kind of coincidence uh, with respect to the internal structure of the carbon atom nucleus uh, that makes it particularly more prone uh, to allow for it to be formed in the hellishly hot cauldrons inside of evolving giant stars. Uh, and one way to get around that is to say, well, you could make the atoms in many different ways, particularly if you were trying lots of times, and we just happen to live, necessarily we happen to live, in one where uh, abundant carbon will form because this is essential for life as we understand it. And without having something like that in the carbon atom, there wouldn't be enough carbon uh, to make us. So here we are in a rather special universe uh, which is set up that way. And this seems, uh, as Hoyle said, either a horrendous coincidence or a, a way in which uh, it happened by purpose or uh, by some super-calculating intellect behind it all. Now, if you want to get around that, you can imagine, well, there are lots and lots, enormous numbers of other universes which just don't happen to get in touch with ours. They're in their own separate spaces. But if they came out rather erratically uh, in sort of a, a mixture of different kinds, the more, commonly, more common kinds that one would expect might not have life. But they could be out there as kind of a, uh, a roulette in making universes. Well, maybe the mathematics will sometime show that it just has to be that there are more, there's more than one universe. But it's an unobservable group of universes out there, and I don't understand what it really buys you intellectually to have so many of them this way. And that's why I'm prepared to accept the uniqueness of our universe and here we are, and we haven't any real knowledge of whether the other ones exist. And it, it, it seems to me that, that the, the multiverse theory, as it is usually, uh, I shouldn't say the theory, right? There, 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 are, there are a multitude of multiverse theories. But, um, but they do seem to fail the test of a good scientific theory if they've don't if there isn't really any way to falsify them uh because we can't observe these other universes or it doesn't give much predictive power either it seems to me um so from purely a scientific point of view i think we've got issues um and it seems that the multiverse theory in, ends up being almost something that one must take on faith to... Maybe I'm just 
have my feet planted too firmly in the 1950s when we thought we understood what the universe was made of <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, that there was one comfortable universe and I'm not imaginative enough to go with the uh, uh, current popularity of the multiple picture. Well, <laughs> then I guess I have my feet firmly planted in the 1950s, too, even though I was not yet even the twinkle in my father's eye uh, <clears throat> at that at that time. But um, but uh, but yeah, no, um, I I would like to uh, we probably should head to the <laughs> head to the exits here relatively quickly. Um, I would like to uh, ask if you had any. Uh, advice or encouragement for for Christians in science that you might like to offer. Um, today we're we're living in a, a, a time in which the 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 conflict thesis of of A.D. White um, is pretty commonly accepted that that religious faith and science are 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 really like oil and water, uh, just shouldn't really mix. Um, at least by a large fraction of people, both inside and outside the sciences, um, for young, especially young Christians entering academia and working in the sciences, this might be a daunting uh, thing for them. What would you say to them, and how how might you encourage them? Well, I would suggest they might want to check out the American Scientific Affiliation, the hmm. organization of people who take. Uh, science and the Bible seriously. Uh, you can find it very easily on the web, and uh, uh, I've got to warn you, you have to have a PhD or equivalent to be a full member, uh, but uh, uh, you can still be a junior mem member if you're just in the process of studying science. Uh, that's one way to go. Mm -hmm. Another way to go is to uh, uh, read the literature on these subjects, and there are uh, fascinating and interesting books. I'm just reading the one by John Walton entitled uh, The Lost World of Adam and Eve. He's a professor at Wheaton College in uh, Illinois, and uh, it's a very uh, concisely written and very stimulating book from a, a very... Uh, gifted Old Testament scholar. There are others like that. Hmm. I'm happy to give him a plug because I think the book is fantastic. Great. Well, I um, I, I, while, while we're while we're talking about other other uh, uh, other books, I I I found one as as uh, as we were getting ready to. Um, uh, have our interview here, and also as I was getting ready to teach um, in in this course to teach the Galileo text, I found one that I, I'd like to actually ask your thoughts on: "Stargazers" by Alan Chapman. Have you heard of this? The subtitle. It's just new. I have uh, had Alan Chapman as a guest here in my office a few uh, years ago. Uh -huh. I've known him for a long time. He has uh, uh, a lot of knowledge uh, of things historically. Uh I'm glad you liked his book. Oh, it's a fantastic book. Um it really it really does uh bring to life a lot of the the challenges that these uh um these men Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler uh 
uh, faced and uh, it was just encouraging to me to see that you know to to, to see them as um, uh, as 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 pioneers but but it really is a much more complex picture than we get you know in in our well, certainly usually in undergraduate training um, when we hear a little bit here and a little bit there about these uh, these astronomers. Um, just to, to to see the more full orbed view of of their work. Um, well, I very much appreciate the the time that you've taken out of your busy schedule to talk to us. I know you're traveling soon, and um, so fitting this in uh, this week was uh, much appreciated. Um, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you today about these important things. I hope most of your listeners have got their income tax finished. Uh, <laughs> Taking up a part of my week. Uh, well, I then I'm doubly thankful for uh, for the time. So um, uh, thanks very much, and uh, uh, I wish you the best on your travel. And uh, again, uh, congratulations on a fine uh, set of lectures. And this book is really helpful. So I appreciate I appreciate that as well. Well, thank you for uh, an interesting afternoon. I've enjoyed talking with you. Yeah, the same goes for me, Dr. Gingrich. Thanks again. Thanks, dear listeners, for listening today. This has been Todd Pedler for the Christian Humanist Profiles podcast. Christian Humanist Profiles is a member podcast of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. The Christian Humanist Radio Network now includes five podcasts, including the Christian Humanist Profiles podcast that you've been listening to. Be sure to check out the other podcasts, including The Christian Humanist, The Christian Feminist, Book of Nature, and our newest member podcast, The Pietist Schoolman. All of these can be found at iTunes or Stitcher. Thanks very much for listening, and good day.